The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the New Testament book of Ephesians, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And I don't want to shock you this morning by not turning to the Gospel of Matthew. I know there's some of you that think that there might not be any other book of the Bible but Matthew. But there, but there is, there actually is. So and if you can, you can find uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 3. This is where I want to take the text for today's message. Now, as you know, for many weeks we've been dealing with the subject of the second coming of Christ. In Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Jesus preached a sermon that's called the Olivet Discourse in which he taught his disciples about watching and waiting for his return. And when you get to the end of Matthew 25, the the great teaching sections of the Gospel of Matthew are over. And then going into chapter 26, it begins the last hours of Jesus' life where he will be betrayed, then go to trial, he'll go to the crucifixion. And then Matthew's Gospel ends with the resurrection of Christ and the promise that Christ made that he will always be with his church until he comes again. And before we get into that next section of Matthew, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about today, uh, about what we should do as we wait for Christ to return. And we've had a couple of messages on that, maybe even more than that, talking about what we do as we wait for Christ to return. But I want to concentrate today on, on the idea of faithfulness, that God expects us to be faithful. And when Jesus preached that message, the Olivet Discourse, he had a whole parable that had to do with faithfulness. That was the parable of the talents, and Jesus taught that we are to be faithfully busy in his service using all the abilities that he's given us. In Luke 18, 3, Jesus said, When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? And today I want to expand on the theme of faith, and I want to talk to you about how that we can develop a deeper faith as we live the Christian life and we wait on Christ to return. And I think that we find some very good information that will help us as we look into the book of Ephesians chapter 3 at the second of Paul's prayers that he prayed in the book of Ephesians. And this prayer that he prayed was a a spiritual prayer. Uh, There weren't any references as to what these Christians needed physically and materially. No doubt they did have great material needs, but Paul didn't mention those, and neither in this prayer did Paul pray for his own needs. And I think that we find that most of our prayers are very much unlike the way that Paul prayed, because most of the time we consume ourselves in prayer with uh, health problems and with financial problems and relational problems. But as Paul prays this prayer, he prays for none of those things, but rather he concentrates on the spiritual. How is it that that God might work in them? And how can Christ be real in them so that they would be fully devoted to the work of the ministry? And that's actually what it means to be a spiritual Christian. How much priority does Christ actually have in your life? And the physical and the material, those things don't really matter if your life has not been dedicated fully to the Lord Jesus Christ and if you aren't daily in your Christian life moving on to maturity and living in tune with God's will. And so successful Christianity is not found in health and wealth and material prosperity. In fact, none of those things are actually the real sign of God's blessings in this life. What we tend to do is to equate our financial blessings with great faith, whereas the Bible says that it speaks more about the deceit of riches than it does the blessings of them. So successful Christianity is not found in those things. It's found in the, in the personal relationship that we have with God as he lives in us and works through us. Now, what Jesus taught was that we must seek the kingdom of God first. 
First, we're to look to the spiritual. He tells us to take no thought for the material. In other words, he tells us that there is no need for us to develop a separate theology that has to do with the physical and the material. We don't need that. All that we really need to do is seek the kingdom of God first, and then he says he's going to add all of these things to us. So God's going to do that because he knows that we're not going to be able to work for him if we can't live. We can't work for him if we can't eat and we can't work for him if we don't have a place of shelter and we don't have our food, our clothing and all of those things. God knows that we have need of those. So we don't have to go out here and get some kind of new theology and a barren theology that has to do with how are we going to get the material. God has already told us how to get the material, and that is to surrender ourselves spiritually to the Lord Jesus Christ and let him work through our lives. Now, most Christians don't become rich, and they don't become rich because God never intended for them to be rich. The most spiritual men that ever lived were the apostles, 11 of them at least, Eleven of them that Christ chose to be his followers, to be the teachers of his church. And those men had nothing materially. And neither did they ask for anything materially. That wasn't their desire. They had, that, that meant nothing at all uh, to them. And if the prosperity gospel and all of that was right, then we would fully expect that the apostles would be very wealthy men because, of course, they're the closest to the Lord. Now, what Paul did was to learn to live without anything but basics and therewith to be content. And so we find that there are very few times that Paul prayed for the material. We never see Paul moaning and groaning. He didn't care where he was as long as he was in God's will. If he was where God wanted him to be, then that was okay. When he wrote this letter, he was in prison. And I think that we would find it very difficult not to complain if we were serving Christ from a jail cell. But that wasn't Paul's worry. His focus was the people that he led to the Lord. And he was concerned about their welfare, and not in a material and a physical way, but concerned about them in a spiritual way. And so his desire was for them to reach the spiritual plane on which he lived. And that plane was a plane of faith, ever-deepening faith in the promises of God. Now, when Paul wrote about faith and living spiritually where he lived, he wasn't writing to super saints. He wasn't writing to Christians that were somehow a cut above all the rest of the other Christians that have ever lived. No, these are just average people, average men and women, and yet they were very capable of being where Paul was. Can you imagine that you could be the kind of Christian that Paul was? Paul didn't possess anything that we don't possess. Nothing that we don't possess. In fact, Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so it was never his own strength that enabled him to live this faithfully dedicated life. And so we also can live on that same spiritual level where he lived by giving ourselves in complete surrender to the Lord. Now, that's what I want to talk to you about today. How do you get from average Christianity to above-average Christianity? C.H. Spurgeon said that there's as much difference between an average Christian and a spiritual Christian as there is between a lost man and a saved man. And if you know how radical that difference is, then you're beginning to understand how far we have to go to live on this spiritual plane where Paul lived. Now let's begin our text here looking at verse number 14 in Ephesians chapter 3. And our focus here is going to be on the first part of verse number 17. And I've decided that I'm going to let you sit down as I read this. So verse number 14, Paul writes, and he's praying, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all 
the fullness of God. Now, there is a a lot of good stuff that we could look at in these verses, but today I want to concentrate on the first phrase of verse number 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And my subject today is developing deeper faith. In the book of Hebrews, the author points out that once we have become Christians, what we should be doing is making a steady progression of learning who Christ is. The author goes into the foundation of Old Testament principles, and he says that these are things that must be improved upon. For example, he he used faith in God. And you might wonder about that. How is it possible that we can improve upon faith in God? How is there something greater than faith in God? And what he actually meant was that faith in God is not complete until we come to the understanding that Jesus is the manifestation of God and that all of our hope must be concentrated in him. Often you'll hear people say, I have faith in God. There are many people that speak about their faith and they say they know who God is. I have faith in God. But they might as well say that I have faith in cornflakes because if they don't know God through the person of Jesus Christ and they don't really understand what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of faith. And in the same manner in which the Hebrews were encouraged to move on from their faith in God to the realization of Christ and God, they should not be content and we should not be content to live in the simplicity of the gospel that has brought us to Jesus Christ. But what we need to do is to increase our understanding. We must increase the the knowledge of the relationship that we have that's been created by that faith that we have in Christ. And so we're not to be satisfied with the simple faith that brought us to Christ, but we are to deepen our faith and make sure that faith is anchored solidly in the truths of God's Word. And the way that we accomplish that, I believe, is the method that we use in Berean Baptist Church. What we do is that we explain the scriptures carefully, we're diligent about the study of the Word of God, and we pray that reading the Word of God and explaining it, that God would use that Word to strengthen faith and to plunge us deeper into the depths of our dependence upon God. And we cannot progress in our faith if we don't actually spend time trying to learn about this faith that God gives, this faith that we call Christianity. Now today I want to show you three aspects of deeper faith. This is the kind of faith that uh, moves you from being an average Christian to being a spiritual Christian. And what I have to say to you today is nothing more than what's already been revealed in the Scripture. I don't have anything I can sell you for 1995 that's a secret to what, how to have this deeper faith. It's all contained right here in the Scriptures. Now, first, what we need to look at is the reality of faith. What is this faith that Paul is speaking of? Now, we first first have to understand what particular kind of faith that it is before we can ascertain the meaning of Paul's statement in Ephesians 3.17. So, what is faith? Well, I'm sure most of you know the classic definition of faith. In Hebrews, the writer defines faith in this way. He said, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now that's the only place in the Bible where we actually find faith defined. And yet it might surprise you that the faith that it speaks of in Hebrews 11 is not the faith that brings you to Christ. Now, sometimes the Bible does speak about saving faith that brings us to Christ. Of course it would. Paul spoke to the Philippian jailer about saving faith, and he said to him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. He said to a woman that touched him in the crowd, he said, Thy faith hath made thee whole. And if you look in the original scriptures there, you learn that he's talking about saving faith, not a physical health, but her faith had, had made her whole. She was a believer now. Faith had made her whole. 
And sometimes when the Bible speaks of faith, it means the whole body of faith. It means the whole compendium of what we call Christian doctrine, what we call Christianity. And that's the way that Jude used the word when he said, earnestly contend for the faith. But in Ephesians 3.17 and in Hebrews 11.1, neither of those is the way that Paul uses the word faith. In these places, he means confidence. That this is the faith by which you live. It's the confidence that you have that everything that God says is true. And it's the assurance that you have that all the promises that God has made to you will actually come true. And one of those promises is the second coming that we spent so many weeks studying. We live in the faith of the second coming, and that's what keeps us working. That's what keeps us waiting for Christ to return. We have faith in that. And folks, if that faith deep is, uh, a deep faith is there, it'll always change your approach to life. As Peter said, it changes our lives to that of holiness and godliness. And so I can tell you that if your life as a Christian is not characterized by holiness and godliness, and if you're always caught in these nasty little sins that contradict your faith in Christ, then you're not living on the plane of spirituality that Paul is describing here. No, this faith is a real faith. It's not an imaginary thing. It's not a slippery thing that you can't get a hold of. This is a real living faith. And the evidence of that faith is what goes on in your everyday living. Just like we discussed last week at the end of chapter 25 in Matthew, the evidence is going to be there. This kind of faith is real. And we notice that in our text that Paul prays that Christ may dwell in their heart by faith. And we know that he means something other than saving faith because they're already Christians. They, they already have the faith that brought them to Christ. So Paul hardly needs to pray that they would have saving faith. And so what does he mean when he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith? Well, evidently there is something more to possess. There's something that goes beyond what they already have because he prays that they might achieve it. And whatever it is, it's good. Whatever it is, it's going to lift them beyond what they have received by that initial saving faith that they have in Christ. Now let me say this before I go further, that he's not speaking here of a second work of grace. He's not talking about another work of grace. I mean, he's not speaking here of some fresh anointing. He's not praying that we'll get some part of the Holy Spirit that we don't yet have. He's not praying for a supernatural gift of the Spirit such as charismatics teach. This is not a tongues experience. It's not a healing experience. It's not an emotional high that causes them to bark like dogs and to be slain in the Spirit. The Apostle John debunks those kinds of myths about special anointing in 1 John chapter 2 when he said, These things have I written unto you concerning them which seduce you, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And there John is describing the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself is the anointing. And every person who is a believer in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit as the anointing at the point that he gets saved. And so you don't have to ask for a second work of grace. You don't have to ask for another portion of the Holy Spirit. You have it all. So Paul is not talking about that. He's not talking about a fresh anointing. He's not speaking of the doctrine of these false teachers. This is about faith, and it's about the kind of faith that can be increased and should be increased through the normal progression of your Christian life. Now we notice first then that this faith is available to all. And when I say all, I'm of course speaking of Christians. This is not for unbelievers. You can't have a, a deeper confidence in God. You can't have this kind of faith until you have the other kind. You first of all must have saving faith, and that is a prerequisite to living faith. And so if you haven't believed in Christ, you, you, you can have no confidence at all that God has anything to do with you. God doesn't hear your prayers. 
Your prayers are in vain. You have no favor with God if you are outside of Jesus Christ. And friend, that is a logical thing. That is a reasonable thing. Because if you reject the Son of God that He sent for a sacrifice for sin, and you say, I don't need that sacrifice. I don't need to believe in Jesus. I don't need that precious blood to wash away my sins. Then you could not have committed any other serious affront against God. God is not going to have anything to do with you without Jesus Christ. And that's something that everybody needs to learn. Our government needs to learn this. We need to learn, we need Jesus Christ. And there is no such thing as everybody having their own God. There's only one God, and that's Jesus Christ. So here he's speaking of hope and confidence in Jesus Christ. As Jonathan Edwards said, if you don't have him, then you're hanging over the pit of hell with nothing more than the thin thread of a spider's web. And the only confidence that you have is that web is going to break under the weight of your sin and you will be plunged into the fires of hell. That's the simple truth of Scripture. You can have no confidence without Jesus Christ. Now let's talk for just a minute here about the faith that we have and Paul speaks of in Ephesians 3.17. It isn't saving faith because they're already saved. It's not justifying faith because they've already been justified. But notice the word dwell. Dwell. That's the key word. Now there's a sense in which no one can be a Christian unless Christ dwells in him. You can't be saved if Christ doesn't dwell in you. But if if that's what Paul meant here, then this prayer is a useless tautology. This is vain repetition because he would be praying for what they already have. And I think that it would be impossible for Paul to pray a prayer that is a useless prayer because what we have here is Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. The Holy Spirit has guided the thoughts of Paul as he prays this prayer, and it comes down to us as Scripture. And what Paul prays here for is something that they have not yet achieved. But it is available. It's available. It's not yet been apprehended by these Ephesian Christians, but it is available. And by extension, since the Scriptures are written for our learning and admonition, this kind of faith that Paul speaks of is also available for us. Dwell, that's the word we need to examine. And that's a special word that means to settle down. He's saying here that Christ might come and settle down in your life. Now there's a sense in which you can dwell in a home and not feel at home. Your own home can be an uncomfortable place. This word means to come and settle down. You know, my wife has always said that she liked our home in Napa, that she was very comfortable there, but she's never actually been comfortable in our house in Santa Rosa. And that might have something to do with the longer that she lives with me, and that's why it's uncomfortable, I'm not sure. But this is a word that means to to get comfortable, to come in and to settle down. It's like when you feel enough at home that you can come in and take your shoes off and put your feet up on the coffee table. You're not going to do that in somebody else's home. This is a place where you have a permanent residence. It's a place where you actually feel comfortable and you don't feel like you're just a visitor in this place. Well, Christ can live in you in that way. All Christians can have lives where Jesus can come in and dwell and be comfortable. To be comfortable that he owns the home and that he belongs there, that it's his Now, understanding those things, we also see that there is a problem. And secondly, it's this, that faith is not apprehended by all. There are many Christians, and perhaps most Christians, that live without this kind of faith. Now, all can live this way, but there are few that actually do. Not all Christians reach this place in their spiritual lives. And what I mean by that is there are some of you that know Christ, but you don't really know him. Oh, you may deal with him, and you may talk about him. You might speak of Christ, but to have that real relationship with him where he's comfortable with you and you with him, you don't even understand what that means. And that's because he's not the center of your life. He's standing on the outside, looking inside the window. 
And what he wants is not really what you want. And when you think about what, what God wants, that's really an afterthought to you. And you don't consider when you go out and do something that your activities are God's activities. You haven't thought about, is this what Christ would have me to do? Is he comfortable with the way that I'm living, the things that I do on a daily basis? And you're not really concerned about how that a Christian should actually function in this world as a child of God. Now many Christians are Sunday Christians, but not everyday Christians. The Bible describes these kinds of Christians and the message that Jesus gave to the seven churches of Asia. And the problem is graphically demonstrated at the end of several rebukes in which Christ is pictured as standing outside of the house rather than being on the inside of the house. In Revelation 3 verse 20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. And that may very well be one of the most misunderstood verses in Scripture. Many people want to make this verse a saving faith issue. But this verse is not speaking of lost people, not the heart of a lost person. This is not the door to the heart of a lost person. Here, Christ is not speaking of that because Christ doesn't need you to open that door. The Holy Spirit opens that door and Christ comes in when he wants to come in. But rather what this is speaking of is the faith of the church. And this is when Christ wants to enter into the door of the church or enter into the individual life of a Christian so that he can come in there and live comfortably. And so what do we need to do? Well, we have to open up the inner recesses of our heart and we have to let Jesus come in and settle down. And we have to realize that he is the master of the house and we must acknowledge his rightful place to be there. And how do we do that? Jesus said in John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So how does he become comfortable with you? The only way is by obedience to his word. He said, if you keep my word, that my Father and I will come in and we will make our abode with you. You will be our place of dwelling. And friends, where there is no obedience, where there is no obedience to the words of Christ, the house is dirty. The house is dirty. It's cluttered. And Jesus can't get comfortable in a house that isn't clean. Let me tell you something about sin. You're not going to be too comfortable having Jesus around if your house is dirty. If your life is a mess with the wickedness of sin, you and Jesus are going to be feuding roommates. It's going to go on all the time, bickering and fighting all of the time. And there are several passages here in Ephesians that talk about keeping the house clean. That's the metaphor that we're using for the life, keeping the house clean. What do you have to do to make Jesus comfortable with you and living in your house? Well, let's just take a look at a few passages. Ephesians 4, beginning of verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he might have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. You might want to underline that, some of you. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Chapter 5 and verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. 
For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Verse number 11, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now, when you get rid of all these things, you might find yourself with an empty house. And neither are you going to be comfortable in an empty house. And so what you have to do is you must begin to furnish the house. Put some new things in. Put some things in that'll make Christ comfortable. Now Paul goes on and he tells us how to furnish the house. Ephesians 4 verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In verse number 23 of that chapter, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Verse 32, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Chapter 5 and verse 2, And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. And then listen to this one. You talk about a happy home. Verse number 19, Speaking to yourselves in praises and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then one more, the 22nd verse. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And I'm not going to talk any more about that because I don't want you husbands to become so happy you fall out of your easy chair and break your neck, so we won't speak about that one. So how is, how is Christ going to be happy in your spiritual house and dwell with you in faith? Well, you've got to get rid of the junk. You've got to get rid of all that nasty stuff, the filth that he's not happy with. And you have to begin to furnish your house with the furniture of heaven. And Christ becomes comfortable in familiar surroundings. Does that make sense to you? Things become familiar if we're talking about the works of God, the works of heaven. Now let's go on. Number two is the activity of faith. And this kind of faith is not just what you have on the inside that you keep yourself. This is a kind of faith that likes to take a walk around the neighborhood. This faith doesn't want to stay bottled up while you commune with God and the rest of the world goes to hell. Now, first, then, we look at faith's vision. Uh, let me go back to Hebrews chapter 11, because following the definition of faith in Hebrews 11:1, 1, there comes these great examples of the vision of the Bible's greatest characters. In verse number 13 of that chapter, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That verse comes after the great examples of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. They all died in faith with persuasion of the promises of God. Now, they hadn't yet realized all that God had for them, but they did have a vision of the promise through faith, and that gave them hope and confidence. And that confidence is expressed in the word persuaded. The Old Testament saints were, were different from those that were around them. They saw something that others didn't see. Noah saw something different. He built an ark in the middle of a dry field. Enoch saw something different. There are only two people in the history of the world that got out of this world alive, and one of them was Enoch. He walked with God, and God took him. And he saw something. He saw this glorious vision of the Lord coming with ten thousands of his saints. You know what that vision was? The second coming of Christ. That's what Enoch saw. Abraham saw something different. He left his friends and his family and he took off following God, not knowing where he was going. 
So what is it that makes these people that move out, uh, move out of the comfort zone, out of the ordinary, into deeper faith? Well, here it is. Christ is central. God was the central person in their lives, and God had settled down in them as the overriding influence of every thought that they had. And so they were persuaded. And that's what Paul says that he was. He said, I am persuaded. Living in prison wasn't too much for him. And so he said in First, Second Timothy, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And do we see Paul living in that faith? Do we see Christ dwelling in him? Prison was okay because he was persuaded that the faith that he had in Christ would open up into the eternal riches of heaven. Now the question for us is will our faith cause us to move out? Will it cause us to do something for God? There's a difference between being an average Christian and a hero of the faith. There's a difference in those two, but not what you might think. A hero of the faith doesn't have to be a preacher who preaches to a thousand people. You remember the, you remember the, the sermon that we had on the talents? That we are to be faithful to use the abilities that God has given. And a hero of the faith is one who is a member of the Berean Baptist Church who has yielded himself to the cause of Christ and that faith motivates him to unfeigned obedience to his Lord. That's what it takes to be this super saint, if that's what you want to call it. The above average Christian is the one who gives obedience to the Lord. So that's faith's vision, being, being persuaded of things as of yet you cannot see. Then secondly, is faith's conviction. In Hebrews, the word is persuaded. They were persuaded of God's promises. Now, what does this persuasion do? Well, if Noah had looked at his own capabilities, he would have said, there's no way that I can build a boat that's big enough to hold all these animals. And what's a boat anyway? And what's rain? We've never seen that before. But persuasion took Noah from being a farmer to being a shipbuilder. And I'm not talking about a dugout canoe or a 16-foot bass boat. We're talking about a 450-foot ocean liner that Noah built. And this is the way that it might be for some of you. You say, well, there's no way that I can do this. There's no way that I could preach a sermon. There's no way that I can sing in the choir. There's no way that I can teach a class. I can't make those kinds of commitments. I'm too busy to do that. I have a job. I can't put myself on the line for God's work. But you just hold on a little bit and you look at who Paul is writing to and who are these people? Most of them are slaves. Read chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. Just write that down. Read it. Many of these were, were forced to work the hours that the master required. Most of them have inferior education. They're not refined. These are not people that hold out hope for some material gain, as I was speaking of at the first. And these are the kinds of people that God uses. Not many mighty, not many noble. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and weak things to confound the mighty. Are you actually persuaded enough of that truth, of these truths that are written in God's holy word, that you can have the conviction that you can actually own the faith of Hebrews chapter 11? Now let's stop for a minute. What if Christianity, what if Christianity or what would it look like if everyone was as committed to Christ as you? Would the church have survived for 2,000 years if everybody during that time was the kind of Christian that you are? And if not, Christ is not comfortable. So here's what you need. You have to see the vision and you have to feel that conviction and when you do, you will perform the action. God has never asked anybody to do the impossible without enabling for the impossible. And if you don't do anything at all, you have no vision and you have no conviction. Now let's look at the final aspect of this deep faith. Thirdly, is the exclusivity of faith. 
Have you ever heard that God can do anything? There's a children's song that says God can do anything. God can do anything, anything. God can do anything but fail. I think that I understand that song. You probably do too. But there are many things that God can't do. God can't sin. God can't die. God can't lie. And here's something else that God can't do. He can't fill what is already filled. In order for Christ to dwell in you in a deeper way, all the things that you have in you must go. Now, I've already spoken of the filth. We've talked about the wrong kind of furniture. But how about this? That when you get rid of all the junk that's in your life, there is still one thing left. And the one thing that's left is you. The hardest thing to get rid of is self. Because most of us are filled up to the brim with self. And if you're filled up with self, then where is Jesus going to dwell? Now, the deeper faith that Paul speaks of here is not to be filled with self and Jesus. This is a house that is exclusive. It's full of only Jesus. Your house has to be his exclusive territory. You see, Jesus is never compatible with conceit. But he's always compatible with humility. And so that tells us that you can be holy, but you can't be holier than thou. You understand? Some Christians think that they're holy when they're actually holier than thou. And that means that what they've done is they've taken over Christ's authority as the judge. So, if you're proud of your holiness, then you're still full of self. Now, the exclusivity of faith, which is moving from self to Jesus, takes place in four different stages. Nobody reaches the place where Paul was with no effort There are four stages of reaching a deeper faith. And we'll finish out here with these four stages. The stages to reaching deeper faith. Stage number one is all of self and none of Jesus. And that's where everybody starts out. doesn't matter who you are. All of us are consumed with self. We're forever concerned about number one. Even when you think that you're thinking of others, you're only thinking how thinking of others makes them think that you're thinking of them. Do you understand that? I don't either, so I'm not going to say it again. But everybody comes into the Christian life this way. This is where we are. This is the way that we've lived our entire life. And when you receive Christ, he comes to dwell in you, but all you have is just saving faith. And saving faith is good. You have to have it. You must have it. But you have to develop that into a living faith. And you don't have that yet. And so Christ is not yet comfortable in that new home. He hasn't come in and settled down and taken his shoes off. And I don't want you to misunderstand this. That when we speak of lordship salvation, I'm not saying that at this point that Christ has not become the Lord of your life. No, he is the Lord of your life and he always will be if you're a Christian. But what has taken place here is that that you haven't yet begun to explore the relationship that you have with Christ. You're willing to do that, because, and you weren't willing before, but you're willing now because the Holy Spirit has changed you and made you willing. And so what you do is you take your scriptures, you take your Bible, and you seek a deeper fulfillment of Jesus Christ. He said, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you do that. And when you begin to eat this healthy diet of God's word and obedience to him and you drink of his life of righteousness, your spiritual health begins to improve. And then you move on and you get to the second stage. And that's where you have some of self and some of Jesus. After becoming a Christian and getting away from all of self and none of Jesus, there comes the stage where you have some of self and some of Jesus. And unfortunately, that's where most Christians stop. And I think that's where these Ephesians were. When Paul prayed this prayer in Ephesians 3, I think they were in stage 2. Most Christians are stuck here. They get this far and they become Sunday Christians. They get their dose of Jesus at 11 o'clock on Sunday, but then they walk out the door of the church and they say, it's all about me now, baby. It's, it's, it's about me. The rest of Sunday and the rest of this week, it's all mine until I come back the next Sunday and get another fix of Jesus. Do you realize 
that there is actually a deep river that you're missing when you live like that. This is not about me, but I can tell you this, that the whole ministry of Brian Baptist Church, in this ministry, there's a deep river that's flowing by. And, and when you walk into the church, most of you are walking in and just wading in to the ankles. You're not about to get in over your head with Jesus. You're not going to take these messages during the week and, and own them. And do you know that there are some members of the church that take notes on the sermons and they pour over them in their personal Bible study during the week? I can lead you to water, but I can't make you drink. And if you're just, if you're just tasting a little bit of this on Sundays at 11, you can forget about moving on to where Paul was. But the sad thing is that all of you have the potential to move on. If Christ has saved you, you have the potential, but it takes discipline. And by the way, the root word of discipline is disciple. And that's what you have to be, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And a true disciple exercises discipline to eat a constant, healthy diet of God's Word. So you have the potential. You need an attitude adjustment. And when you have it, you'll move in to stage number three. And stage three is less of self and more of Jesus. Now you see the weight starting to shift. The balances are starting to tip towards Jesus. And this is the Christian who's willing to become more involved in the church. And this stage really ought to come with a warning sign because if you're not ready for what comes next, you don't want to get to stage number three. Well, let me give you an analogy of this. When I was a little bit younger... I did a lot of snow skiing. I skied a, a lot of the great resorts. I skied Aspen and Snowmass and Vail and Jackson Hole. Even had the opportunity one time to ski the Matterhorn. So we used to take our kids skiing every year. And after a little bit of practice and being on the bunny slopes and in the ski school, they were ready to take the big stuff. Or so they thought. So they wanted to take the lift and go all the way up to the top of the mountain. And they would say, Dad, let's take a black diamond. I skied in Aspen one year on a double black diamond, and I crawled down the slope. I, I couldn't get down. And this kind of thing, that didn't phase them. They had an hour of ski school. So they're ready. They're ready now. Well, you have to be careful for what you ask for, because after you ride up the lift and you reach the top of the mountain, when you get to the peak, it's downhill from there, and it comes fast. And that's how it is in the Christian life. When you get into this stage and you get committed to it, you'll find, you'll find out this is pretty good stuff. This is better than skiing on the bunny slope. This is good stuff. This is thrilling stuff. And you'll get these strong feelings that you never had before. And at some point you begin to realize, this is going to take more time than I thought. This is going to take more commitment than I actually thought. And you might want to pull back. But you've been reading the Bible. You've been praying. And there's this urge to go on to perfection. And it's so strong that you don't want to stop. And most of you sitting here have no idea what I'm talking about. Because you're stuck in stage two. But you have to be careful when you get to stage three. When you make the plunge to stage three, you have to watch out. Because you're approaching where Paul was. And I have to stop the analogy here. Because in skiing, it's downhill. In the Christian life, it's up. It's always up when you're following Christ. And it brings you to stage number four. And stage four is where you have none of self and all of Jesus. And this is what happens. You've cleaned up the lifestyle. You've started to live a holy life. The pride of holiness is gone. The evil stuff has gone out. The pride is out. And all of that's washed out in the tide of the, of the increasing depths of deeper faith. All is gone and nothing is left but Jesus. And do you know he stated that principle in Matthew 16, 24? He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And that's how you get to the place where Christ dwells in you by faith. When you deny self, then you've gone all the way over to Christ. Because, friends, there is no one who will deny self until you become a, a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And do you know what becomes evil for this kind of a Christian? It's the affections and lust. 
It's itself. It's the gratification of self. Galatians 5.24 says, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with affections and lust. And so here we have the key to Ephesians 3.17. It's none of self and all of Jesus and Christ dwells in your heart by faith. Is that where you are? Have you fallen so deeply in love with Jesus that there really isn't anything else that matters? Our text says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's what Paul prays for. It's confidence in Christ. Are you persuaded for him? Do you believe that he will return for you? Well, if you're persuaded in this way, you have no doubt. No doubt that every promise that Christ made is going to come true. He dwells in your heart by faith, and when he does, I can promise you, you are going to be ready when Christ returns. And so we take the warnings of Matthew 24 and 25 very seriously. And when you do that, Christ will live in your heart, dwell in your heart by faith. And may God help us that all of us have none of self and all of Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now and we have to admit that we haven't served you as we should. Most of us, I think all of us, would say we can do a far, far better job than we have done. We haven't really considered what it is that you want. We haven't crucified the flesh. We haven't gotten rid of all those things that we desire and replaced them with the things that you've told us will be the greatest sources of happiness, joy, peace in the Christian life. Lord, I pray you speak to Christians today. This has been mostly to Christians and Just draw them to a stronger faith in you and may they be willing to put all these things aside that we might serve Christ better. And if there is someone here today who doesn't know you, help them to understand what we've said, that you have nothing to do with a person who doesn't know you. There's no happiness, there's no peace, there's no confidence. You have nothing to do with a person who doesn't know Jesus Christ. How important it is to know him. Speak to our hearts today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.